Section 5 of The Romance of Polar Exploration. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marcus Alexander. MarcusAlexanderActor.com. The Romance of Polar Exploration by G. Firth Scott. Chapter 5 The Alert and Discovery. Her Majesty's Government, having determined that an expedition of Arctic exploration and discovery should be undertaken, my Lord's Commissioners of the Admiralty have been pleased to select you for the command of the said expedition, the scope and primary objective of which should be to attain the highest northern latitude, and, if possible, to reach the North Pole. Such was the opening sentence of the official instructions sent to Sir George Nares to take command of the Alert and Discovery. Two steam vessels, which constituted the first expedition the British government had sent to the Arctic regions since the research parties for Sir John Franklin. It was confidently expected that the introduction of the screw steamer into Arctic navigation would result in startling achievements, and those expectations were fully justified. The two ships, with HMS Valorous, in consort with Provisions and Company, on board, left Portsmouth on May 29, 1875. They were home again by November 2, 1876, and during the intervening 18 months they had reached the most northerly point attained by man up to that period, and only since succeeded on the sea by the Fram. No greater contrast can be given of the enormous strides which had been made in navigation during the thirty years which had elapsed since Franklin sailed away on his last and fatal voyage, than the fact that whereas after six weeks journeying Franklin had barely reached the region of drift ice, in six weeks from the date of leaving Portsmouth, the alert and discovery were almost in the region of perpetual ice, and all owing to the application of steam to ocean traveling. The route laid down for the expedition was along the western coast of Greenland and as far through Robeson Channel, which divides Grinnell Land from Greenland as it was possible to get. Disco Bay, halfway up the Greenland coast, was the spot where the alert and discovery were to part company with the Valorous. They entered the bay on July 4th, having had, on the voyage to the north, the peculiar experience of chasing and overtaking a season. When they left Portsmouth at the end of May, summer was well in, but when they arrived at Disco Bay, they found that the mild weather which forms the spring had not yet set in sufficiently to melt all the winter's snows. So they had traveled quicker than the summer, having started after it had begun in England, and arrived in Greenland before it was due. The early spring flowers were just commencing to bloom on the slopes around Disco, wherever the snow had melted, while higher up on the hills, where the winter's snow still lay, the explorers had an opportunity of looking upon that curious phenomenon, red snow. A minute animalcule, Protococcus nivalis, generates in the frozen covering of the earth, and increases so rapidly and in such vast numbers that it gives to its cold white habitat the hue of its own microscopic body. Another minute creature also breeds in enormous numbers in these bleak regions, the mosquito, which one usually associates with dense tropical jungles and fever-breeding swamps. All along the Greenland coast, wherever there is a pool of fresh water which thaws from the ice grip, the larvae of the mosquito appear in swarms in the spring, and very shortly after, the full-fledged insect emerges in the utmost vigor of irritating, stinging life. As the time is short between the period when the ice melts and when the water freezes again, the Greenland mosquito has to be active to work out his life mission before he is frozen off, and the skin of all visitors to his locality gives ample evidence how well he utilizes his opportunities. 
In addition to taking on board the surplus stores from the Valorous, the two Arctic ships also took on board teams of dogs for sledging purposes. Fifty-five in all were shipped, their quarters being situated on the main deck, where they were necessarily cramped for room, and, what was worse from their point of view, were unable to get at one another's throats, owing to their being chained to bolts. Consequently, they kept up a constant chorus of snarls and yaps, varied now and again with a howl as one or another received a remonstrating kick from a sailor. This interminable uproar was explained by the Eskimo dog driver, who was also taken on board, as being due to the fact that most of the dogs were strangers to one another, and no one was as yet the properly constituted king. When Captain McClintock purchased a team of dogs from the Eskimo of King William's Land, he had a good deal to learn about their peculiarities. But the people on the alert and discovery, having a great many more dogs than he was able to obtain, had also a great deal more to learn about them. Sir George Nares, in his account of the expedition, gives some particulars which were furnished by his Eskimo dog driver, and these show that the sledge dog is quite as wise as one might expect from Captain McClintock's experiences. In every team of dogs, one is the king. He holds that position by prowess only, and has to fight and thrash every other dog in the team before he can assume the leadership. When he has once assumed it, he has to keep it by the same means, for revolutions may at any moment occur through some younger dog aspiring to the ruling position. But while a dog has the position of authority, he exercises his rights with decision, and the remainder of the team cluster round him and support him in emergencies, or lie at his feet in times of leisure. The only one who is allowed to snarl at him without at once being bitten is the queen. She is among her sex what the king is among his, for though she depends more upon him for her prominent position than to her own fighting qualities, she maintains it, when once obtained by a free use of her jaws upon encroachers. Consequently, when a number of teams were brought together on the decks of the vessels all strangers to one another, there was a tremendous amount of fighting in prospect before peace could be granted. Firstly, the kings of the various teams were anxious to tussle for the supremacy, and with the prospect of some of them getting badly mauled, there were several inferiors in each team ready to do battle with their injured monarch, and, when he was disposed of, with one another for the leadership. But their new masters, instead of letting them all loose to settle their various degrees of authority in their own hereditary fashion, tied them up where they could see and hear one another, without exchanging a bite. The kings, naturally warlike and ferocious, could only snap at their inferiors as they bayed in their rage, and the inferiors could only bay in their pain, and so between them the ship's company were kept awake by night and annoyed by day. When at length opportunity occurred for liberating the dogs and giving them some exercise over the ice, Great care had to be taken so as to prevent a wholesale melee. Each team, as they were freed from their deck chains, were led onto the ice and made fast to a sledge, two men being in charge of each sledge for the purpose of learning how to drive. And a highly exciting time they had of it, for not only did every dog want to start in its own direction as soon as they were harnessed, but every team wanted to attack every other team directly they appeared. Nor were the troubles of the drivers limited to the dogs. The whip which is used for sledge teams consists of a very short handle and a very long lash. In the hands of an expert, it is a most effective weapon, being capable of producing a resounding crack or a stinging blow wherever the wielder desires. But in the hands of a novice, it is, like an Australian stock whip, prone to do everything that the wielder does not wish. The amateur driver of a team, growing impatient as his dog set off at full speed in various directions, and, besides tangling the harness, upset the sledge and themselves, and very nearly himself as well, lashed out viciously at the worst offender. 
but the lash, instead of bringing the creature to his senses, curled back and hit the striker across the face, or twined round the legs of his companion, with disastrous results. Meanwhile, the Eskimo driver was going from one group to another, trying to explain the mysteries of the art, much to the amusement of the onlookers and the indignation of the inexperienced amateurs. During the wait at Disco, another form of Arctic traveling was practiced by the officers of the expedition. This was the use of the Eskimo kayak. The kayak is a long, narrow canoe entirely covered in with a waterproof covering. The voyager sits in the middle in a small round hole, the covering lapping over the edges and being fastened round the waist. The kayak is thus made as buoyant as a life belt, whether floating on an even keel or upside down. By reason of their build, they are peculiarly cranky craft, turning over at the least provocation, and so require extremely careful handling, unless one is an adept at swimming and diving. The experience of one of the officers made this clear. He had securely strapped himself in when, by a false stroke of the paddle, he overturned the kayak. He could not get it back again and was unable to loosen the cover. There was only one way of escape, and that possible alone to a man familiar with being underwater. Loosening his clothes, he wriggled out of them and came to the surface just in time to avoid drowning. Having taken on board all the stores that the Valorous carried, as well as a full supply of coal, the Alert and the Discovery started in company for the north. The advantages of steam navigation were made even more apparent as they proceeded, for the ships were able to steam through ice-encumbered water, which would have been quite impassable for sailing vessels. Depending so much upon the wind, a sailing vessel is only able to make headway amongst heavy drifting flows by means of long hawsers, run out and made fast to a mass of ice, and then slowly hauled in at the capstan. Steamers, on the other hand, experienced no difficulty in forcing their way past and between the lesser flows, and Sir George Nairs, who had had a great deal of experience of sailing vessels in the ice regions, was frequently astounded at the ease with which the two steamers rammed their way, clearing from out of their course lumps of ice which would have been difficult obstacles to a sailing ship. Those on board, however, were not to escape without some experience of the peculiarities of ice movements. The vessels were going to make fast for the night, and a boat's crew was sent from the alert to carry an anchor to a large, heavy mass not far distant. On near approach, it was seen that the lump was very rotten, and as no hold for the anchor could be found near the waterline, one of the men volunteered to clamber up to the top and, with an ice chisel, make a hold for it. He clambered on to the slippery, treacherous mass, and, after a great deal of very careful exertion, succeeded in reaching a point high enough for his purpose. He began lustily to drive in the chisel, but so rotten was the ice that instead of merely chipping out a crevice, he cracked the top of the lump. Another blow, and, to his intense amazement, a huge mass in front of him slid away, gliding down the side. Fortunately, away from the boat, it splashed into the sea. But the removal of so much from the top of the berg upset its balance, with the result that it swayed from one side to the other as it recovered its equilibrium. The unfortunate sailor, with nothing to cling to, had to scramble up and over the summit as the berg dipped down. But no sooner was he over the top than the berg swung the other way, and he had to scramble back again. There was no means of escape until the berg settled down once more, and, in the meantime, his companions in the boat and on the steamer were shouting with laughter at the antics of what they called their squirrel on the iceberg. While he was in his lofty, if unsteady position, however, he noticed on a floe not far distant three walrus, and as soon as he returned to the ship and reported his discovery, 
a boat with a harpoon and two rifles was dispatched. The three animals lay contentedly enough on the ice, paying scarcely any heed to the advancing boat, with the result that all were hit. The two that were shot slid off into the water and sank, but the one that was harpooned could not escape. He was an immense creature, measuring over twelve feet in length and eleven feet round the thickest part. His tusks were over eighteen inches long, and, when cut up, he yielded five casks of meat, weighing twelve hundred and fifty pounds. As the two vessels advanced farther to the north, they found that the character of the ice was very different from that met with in the neighborhood of Baffin's Bay and Lancaster Sound. It was more massive and heavy, a berg they passed, towering nearly three hundred feet above the waterline, and flows frequently occurring some miles in length and standing fifty feet out of the water. The possibility of being caught between such masses and nipped was a constant danger, for no vessel could possibly withstand the tremendous pressure exerted by two flows of that size colliding. A constant lookout had to be maintained from the crow's nest for any sign ahead of the flows closing in, and by careful navigation anything like a severe nip was avoided. By August 24th they had made such excellent progress as to be nearly at the end of the hitherto explored channel. A southerly wind was helping them along, but about four in the afternoon it began to die away. They were then in Bessel Bay, and in order to see how the ice was ahead, Sir George Nares decided to land and climb to the top of Cape Morton, which is some two thousand feet in height. From the summit a magnificent view was obtained, of which the following description is given by Sir George Nares in his account of the expedition. It was a beautiful morning with scarcely a cloud in the sky. The cold, sharp wind which had benumbed us at the sea level was local, for, on the summit of the Cape, it was perfectly calm. Sixty miles distant in the southwest were the Victoria and Albert Mountains of Grinnellland, fronted by Hans Island showing clear of Cape Bryan, which had Hanna Island nestling at its base. Farther north was an elevated spur from the main range which, rising between Archer Fjord and Kennedy Channel, formed Daly Promontory. Fronting these mountains and directly separated from them by an extensive valley extending to the northward from Carl Ritter Bay was the black buttress-shaped cliff forming Cape Back, the southern extremity of the nearly straight running line of flat-topped coast hills extending twenty miles to Cape Defos. From that point the coastline became more hilly, and joining the Daly Mountains extended to Cape Lieber, a bluff headland with Cape Baird, a low flat point jutting out beyond it. Still, farther north were the lofty mountains of Grantsland, with steep cliffs about Cape Union, though seventy miles distant distinctly visible forming the western extremity of Robeson Channel. Nearly due north a slight break in the continuity of the land showed where Robeson Channel opened into the Polar Sea. On the eastern side of the strait, at a distance of forty miles, was Cape Lupton, the notable landmark denominated Polaris Promontory. Then came Polaris Bay, with the low plains leading to Newman Bay. At my feet lay Cape Tyson and Cape Mary Cleverly on the north shore of Peterman Fjord, rising to an elevation of 1,500 feet. In this district, picturesque and beautiful as portrayed by the explorer's description, the discovery wintered, while the alert went on farther north, the spot where the Discovery was left, and which was named Discovery Bay, was a large well-protected inlet inside an island, the outer point of which formed Cape Bellet. 
In the summer it was sparsely covered with loose ice, but in the winter sea, hills, cape, and plains were all covered in the one white garb. As the two vessels entered the bay early in the morning of August 25th, what at first were taken to be nine boulders were observed on the shore, but as the vessels swung to their anchors, the boulders were observed to move away. At once the cry of musk oxen was raised, and boats were hastily lowered, filled with sportsmen keen for the chase. The oxen, disturbed by the noise, made for the higher ground, where they were followed by the enthusiastic shooting party, until every one of the nine was brought to the ground. The following day, August 26th, the ships parted company, the alert taking with her an officer and a sledge team of men from the Discovery, with the idea of sending them back overland when winter quarters were selected, an idea which had to be abandoned by reason of the impassable nature of the country. On the last day of the month, the alert met a particularly heavy flow, the ice forming it being of the massive character which denoted that its origin was the polar sea. Once the grinding mass of hummocks rising higher than the vessel's decks threatened to catch her. There would have been no hope of escape if they had, and only by persistently ramming her way through some of the looser ice did she escape in towards the shore. Next day, a strong gale sprang up from the southwest, and the alert went along at ten miles an hour in an open channel between the land and the heavy pack, which was drifting about three miles out. By midday, they reached latitude 82 degrees, 24 minutes north, and the flags were run up to the mastheads amid general rejoicing, for it was the farthest point north to which a ship had yet sailed. With the channel showing clear ahead of them and the spanking breeze astern, Expectation was high on board that they would be able to sail right up to latitude 84 degrees, but within an hour their hopes were suddenly and thoroughly checked. On hauling to the westward they rounded a promontory and found that the land trended away to the west. The wind veered round to the northwest and drove the ice in upon the channel, which gradually became narrower until, when off Cape Sheridan, the main pack was observed to be touching the grounded ice and effectually barring all further progress. The alert was run close up to the end of the channel, and then, when it was certain that there was no chance of getting through the barrier, she was anchored to a floe which rested aground off the cape. The next day, as the heavy ice of the pack was grinding against the stranded floe, and an opening just large enough for the vessel to get in was observed in the floe, she was warped into the basin. She was barely inside when a solid hummock crushed against the opening, forming a great barrier between the vessel and the outer moving pack. Had it struck there a few minutes earlier, the vessel would have been severely injured by the nip, but as it was, the hummock formed an admirable shelter from the pressure of the pack. This was often so severe that masses over 30,000 tons in weight were broken off and forced up the inclined shore, rising 12 and 14 feet higher out of the water as they crunched along the ground. End of Section 5 Recording by Marcus Alexander, marcusalexanderactor.com.